hate being uncomfortable. I really believe in making yourself as uncomfortable as possible. So kind of sitting at tables where you feel like, why on earth am I at this table with all these geniuses? Like forcing yourself to kind of muscle through and, and find your like reason and, and value and comfort zone in the most uncomfortable places is a big part of how I think we grow. And it's a, a big part of how I've learned to kind of uh, expand kind of my vision and what I'm building along the way. Amy Novogratz is the co-founder of Aquaspark, a global investment firm focused on aquaculture. They invest in companies and founders throughout the entire supply chain, helping to make sustainable seafood available for everyone. In this episode, we cover Amy's upbringing in New York and the environment growing up with six other siblings, why her health issues gave the foundation an attitude of going big, her passion for aquaculture and aquasparks priorities going forward, and Amy's best advice for people wanting to create an interesting life and career. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. I want to start in a very, you know, funny place because I read some stories about you. So can you just tell us the benefit of waking up early? Because as I understand, you quite early started to rise up early at 6 a.m., I think. (laughs) you know I'm just one of those people that I think like genetically likes waking up early so it it works for me and I I just think most clearly in the morning before my brain is kind of flooded with everything else and tons of stimulation and too much to do Um, so it's just my kind of early like power hours of getting stuff done and you know I'm from New York where everybody gets up early but in the Netherlands, it's really rare. Like when you leave the house at 6 a.m., you don't see another soul on the street. So you really, and I actually get up quite before six usually just to have that quiet time. But you really appreciate it in a different way here. Yeah, because just to put that in context, like if you see like a, a taxi or like if that person rises at 3 a.m. or work out at 4 a.m., that's not like something very unusual. It happens that people in the U.S. start. It, do you think it's like the cliche, like if you start early, you can win the day? Or is it something deeper? Like, <laughs> I mean, the early bird does get the worm, right? <laughs> I, I think um, 
I, I think it's just that, that like, I haven't put a ton of thought into it. I mean, I guess it is about filling kind of as much of your day as, as you can and trying to kind of be productive. And I, I, I don't, I haven't thought as much about it actually. Um, but, but one thing that, that we, we can add on to that waking up early, like, can you just give like a snapshot into your household? Because like, if you look at all of the siblings, like, it seems like you all have done incredibly things. Like, do you think it was like fostered a culture early up? Or do you think it's just like randomness that you all sort of seems to have, you know, great success and done a lot of amazing things? Or do you think something in the early age set you up to this path? Yeah, you know, I think I think we're 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 a big group. There's seven siblings who um, are all pretty like-minded in a lot of ways. And I, 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 my, I, have, I have one brother who likes to refer to us all as salespeople. But I think when when you're a part of such a big group, you have to fight often to be heard. And so you learn how to kind of get the stage and and make your point and try to engage people. We we had a mother who really valued storytelling and was a great storyteller. And we all definitely learned from and, and took a, a bunch of that into our lives. And, and parents who from an early age just kind of talked about making your contribution and 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 the importance of making an effort is a, is a big part of our kind of family tradition. So I, I think it's it's there was a lot of lot of nurture around kind of who who you should be in the world, kind of getting out there, doing something, using your time. Um, and then when you're when you're with a group of siblings where everyone's you know kind of excited about building and, and ambitious in certain ways, that lifts you up as well. Your world gets bigger because of them, through them. Um, and it's 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 a, a fun environment to kind of want to want to push your limits in with this safety net of, of family and siblings and love. Definitely. So, but like at the start, so I think you explored, you know, theater, you went into politics or policymaking, like, can you just explain, you know, sort of like the way you find, find, you know, your trajectory? Was it just trying and, you know, or did you have like an exact plan all the time? Or were you just like, I'm just going to explore whatever excites me and see where it lands, basically? You know, I, you know, I, I grew up um, from a very young age of having health challenges. And so having kind of a lot to deal with on that plate and always um, being really baffled around the fact that we've kind of constructed the society that doesn't work for a lot of people um, and never really understood why if you're going to kind of design a way of thinking, doing, being, why it would be one that wasn't more inclusive and kind of kinder and more open and, and all these things that so many of us as humans crave. And so uh, from an early age, I always kind of wanted to change the way um, things were done, which is very vague. Um, and I wasn't sure how. I thought in a lot of ways it was through kind of changing culture and our philosophy around who we are and, and how we interact with each other and how we make sense of our time here. Um, and uh, it, it was kind of always exploring that thread into different sectors and, and meeting different people. And I like building, I like putting pieces together. I, I, I think I'm pretty good at engaging groups and people and getting them to build alongside us or with us. And so this kind of idea of collaboratively building and really bringing in different ways of doing things um, kind of became part of how I did things. 
Um, and I, you know, saw different opportunities and left into them. But I'd actually say, even though I've, I've kind of worked in the arts, in uh, media, um, in social policy, and then and then through TED um, and running the TED Prize for a decade through in healthcare and SETI and oceans and th this incredible kind of world of just different different uh, sectors, different ideas that were all multidisciplinary or became multidisciplinary through the projects we worked on together. Super interesting. Do you think like when you look back on that journey, do you also think it's a matter of like, you know, having sort of like the growth mindset of just making things happen? Because when you talk about that story, I mean, there's certainly a lot of setbacks in, in having those experiences. Like when you talk about all the amazing projects you've been participating on, like in my mind, at least, it, I don't think that comes, you know, only by getting yes by people. Maybe you also have to be, you know, proactive and also be stubborn to, you know, create the world you want to create, basically. I've been called stubborn before, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I hate being uncomfortable. I really believe in making yourself as uncomfortable as possible. So kind of sitting at tables where you feel like, why on earth am I at this table with all these geniuses? Like forcing yourself to kind of muscle through and, and find your like reason and, and value and comfort zone in the most uncomfortable places is a big part of how I think we grow. And it's a, a big part of how I've learned to kind of uh, expand kind of my vision and what I'm building along the way. Um, I actually worked with someone years ago who always told me you kind of never enter a room without a real intention, a real reason for being there. And I've kind of, I, I, I've used that and as my kind of what thing to focus on instead of my own discomfort. My, I kind of find that that reason, whether it's uh, you know, a farmer I met in Indonesia, or one of our entrepreneurs, or my own family, or children, who, whatever that reason is in the moment, or or because I realize I'm with a group of scientists that don't know how to communicate, and I can facilitate communication and help bring their ideas out, or whatever that reason is for me being kind of in the room, I, I focus on that and, and try to kind of drive from there. That's a great way of looking at it. But do you, like, when you talk about, you know, uncomfortable, you know, experiences, do you have any stories you can share where you really felt uncomfortable or is it just like more like on a daily, on a like from day to day, you should put yourself through some hardships or do you have some top three things that or really stick in mind? I mean, I, I you know, it's, it's saying yes to speaking occasions. It's, 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 it's a lot. It's not necessarily daily things. It's, it's saying yes to the hard things. It's pushing yourself into conversations that you don't want to deal with head on. Um, it's interesting, you know, I've worked uh, in a lot with, with through the TED Prize, but in all these different sectors that we just talked about. And one of the most uncomfortable for me was the finance world. Um, it's it's closed in a way, it's, it's so, um, uh, th there's such a way of doing things. And that was not my background at, at all. And I, um, I, I, I kind of mentioned being able to engage partners and collaborators and and I've always kind of gotten good at being able to build with the experts and, and kind of listen to and so it's helped me be comfortable in, in sectors or, or spaces where you know it wasn't my expertise leading the way I was I was uh, kind of on the shoulders of, of, of experts. Um, but I found that almost the most uncomfortable entering the world of kind of investment making and finance. 
Um, and after you know years of finally getting a real product that's strong and, and starting to prove itself, um, and and really learn a tremendous amount around moving capital into markets and making investments and growing companies, um, I've become finally much more comfortable here. But it's it's definitely one of the most like entering this space was one of the more uncomfortable experiences I had. Very interesting. But but let's just dive into, you know, ocean and aquaculture, which is sort of the main theme or topic today. So was it just like the perfect coincidence that you ended up in this aquaculture space? Because I know that you were working with some ocean projects, but maybe you can just tell us the story on how you ended up, you know, focusing so much on aquaculture, because I mean, it's also like a personal story there, I guess, but it, I mean, it all just connects together in some sense. It's, it, it was the perfect setup of a number of coincidences kind of coming together. Um, you know, and I kind of re referred to this earlier, but so I was I was working with Sylvia Earle, who is uh, one of the greatest kind of ocean scientists in the world. She's from the U.S. and she's been in the ocean space uh, for decades. She still to this day, I believe, has walked deeper untethered on the ocean floor than anybody else and just has incredible stories of being a pioneer in this space. And because she spent so long in the ocean, she can kind of tell you firsthand um, around the loss that's happening in the ocean. Um, and working with Sylvia on really, this was, you know, 2009, this started, um, realizing at the time, nobody was talking about the ocean. We had this kind of green movement, we were talking about the earth, but as she always said, like the earth is mostly water. It should, we should be talking about ocean, not earth. Like we, we need the ocean to make the earth habitable. Um, it was kind of one of those aha moments of, how how isn't this not the most urgent pressing like issue for all of us to kind of wrap our heads around and and also you're with a lot of really communicated dedicated like the, the ocean advocates are just they've been out there and only kind of talking to each other in a lot of ways and and what i did with the ted prize was help people um get out of their worlds to, to engage different worlds so that it wasn't necessarily scientists talking to scientists, but scientists could then, you know, talk to funders and storytellers, designers, um, uh, product uh, designers, whomever it might be in order to expand their vision. And when working with Sylvia, we were on uh, one of the, of the big parts of making her wish come true with the TED Prize was bringing 100 people to the Galapagos, people that were committed to doing something around ocean health, didn't know what yet. Um, I met my partner who was an entrepreneur, is an entrepreneur from the Netherlands uh, on this boat. Um, I think probably... I'd say almost all of the people on the boat are still really committed to doing something around oceans. Many of them have their, their whole livelihood is around ocean health right now, but it was a really transformative experience. Um, officially, six different initiatives were launched around creating marine protected areas and a couple of other things. Um, a number of them were funded. Um, unofficially, the seventh initiative was, was AquaSpark. Um, my partner and I wanted to do something together. Um, we wanted it to be a business that affected ocean health. Um, and it, it, we, we couldn't, you know, there weren't like that many things around the ocean that we could think of starting a business with. One of the biggest issues was plastic. Um, we saw at the time really just not using plastic, single-use plastic especially, uh, as the, the way forward. Um, 
the overfishing piece and how much we take from the ocean is hard to wrap your mind around and try and 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 trying to kind of stop commercial fishing practices and change them when you also know we have a, a massive and growing population to feed um was a little kind of confusing to to navigate we came upon aquaculture as a solution and we were stunned that we had no idea that it was so big um i mean it's now why bigger we we produce more fish from aquaculture than we do for the wild from the wild for human consumption it's larger than beef it's a massive global industry it's growing faster than any other food sector out there um and most people know nothing about it it's been very opaque traditionally um there was no outside investment going into it um it's just you kind of couldn't stop uh looking and wanting to know more and digging and digging and digging it uh, felt like we were starting to, this is kind of now 2011, moving into 2012, starting to really, like there were, there were some pioneers in the space really trying to produce sustainable fish and we're doing so, but only able to sell them in really um, high-end markets at a crazy premium. But you figured like, well, if you, can, if you can produce the perfect trout for San Francisco, can't we scale alternative feed ingredients and figure out the right technology and kind of get, um, you know, scale solutions across the globe for different markets, different species, different systems in order to kind of get all aquaculture there and then make that the, the commercial norm basically. Um, and so we got more and more excited about this and, and dug in. That's a great answer. I mean, there's so many key points that I want to, you know, um, ask you about, but let's just start with like, maybe it sounds like a simple question, but I think like, like we both have worked and work in this industry. So we don't usually talk so much about it, but just like start with a simple question, like, why do we need aquaculture? Because I think many people who are, you know, watching Netflix documentaries about, you know, some very, you know, harshly maybe narratives or reading you know patagonia marketing campaign maybe ask themselves the question like do we really need aquaculture at all right so if you can just start there like why do we need aquaculture maybe it's easier for people to understand where we are coming from i mean first of all it's what is it one third of the world's population uh, depends on aquaculture or fish as their major source of protein um if you look at where population growth is happening or forecast to happen it's in those markets that where fish is their main source of protein um fish is an incredibly healthy source of protein there's a, a lot of recent research by rockefeller around kind of needing those nutrients for brain development and that that's kind of going to lift us all and if you look at uh eats uh kind of uh, after, you know, eat and Lansing's, I think they took 10 years to figure out what the kind of the perfect diet is um, around both sustainability and, and human health and well-farmed fish was a big piece of that. But uh, I don't think people realize how well we can produce fish either. Um, yes, some aquaculture has challenges and we didn't know as much 10 years ago as we know now. And, and there've been some kind of messy patchworks to fix mistakes along the way. Um, but uh, there's also, you know, the, the potential to farm aquaculture, farm fish in a, in a way better than uh, any other kind of animal protein. Um, we can do it with very little water, 
the farm we were just we were talking about before we started, we have an Atlantic halibut farm in in uh, Norway. They farm a kilo of halibut for less than a kilo of feed, right? Like we we can create systems that are really efficient. We can use uh, insects, uh, single cell proteins, microbes, um, algae as feed ingredients. We can do aquaculture really different than we've historically been doing aquaculture. And, and this is like the superb, sustainable future of aquaculture. But actually, even now, if you look at kind of uh, greenhouse gas footprint of aquaculture um, versus other uh, proteins, it's, it's already kind of way down and, and the better solution. But, but don't you just think like it's interesting because you also have, you know, the U.S. perspective. And I mean, I've talked to a lot of people in the U.S. that don't know anything about aquaculture at, at all. So it's also like I feel there are like some points here, like when you do something in big scale, like aquaculture, obviously it's going to be trade-offs, right? Wh whatever you do in like big scale is going to have some problems you need to solve. But it also just seems to me like, you know, there's a huge educational piece that needs to be solved. Because if you take like just you mentioned water, right? Imagine when you do when you you know make beef, the water consumption is crazy, and you know water is a scarce resource. So there's so many points that maybe I don't think you know the normal person really understands because they they never you know looked at the data. It's it's a a really good point, and it, it would frustrate me like crazy when we were initially out there talking about this, and everyone would talk about aquaculture being bad, and I was like, well, what what do we eat instead? Beef? I mean, what do you, what what's the alternative here? Um, and now you have people saying that you know cell based and and plant based uh, are the alternatives, and and they will be part of the solution for sure, a big part, but. I don't think we're ever going to be able to produce tilapia as well, as efficiently, as affordably, for example, in a lab or as we are in a farm. And that, that's an extreme example, but I could name a number of species that fit that bill as well. Um, and I, I think part of our mission is to really just get people to understand what aquaculture is. You know, uh, you know, 15 years ago, people generally didn't pay that much attention to what we were eating, like labels weren't that honest. Like, so, so that's shifted greatly in our advantage as well. People actually are starting. So yes, they have kind of misinformed ideas. At least they're, they're caring about how their food is produced and want to know more. And now it's our kind of in the industry's collective challenge to really be way more transparent to tell the story and, and to show and, and to get it right. So it's a proud, a story we're proud to tell around kind of replacing antibiotics, greening feed, um, reducing water, uh, land use, et cetera, et cetera, and really showing how well we can produce this perfect protein. Definitely. So just an interesting question, like you're based in Netherlands right now. How much do you, do you feel like the cultural differences between maybe Europe and US? Do you feel like they're all on the same page or is it like huge difference in terms of what they value and how they view the world in the food supply chain? So I don't want to generalize. And, and, and actually, I'm usually in bubbles in both places where everybody passionately cares about kind of food production. But if I am to generalize, I will say that... Uh, you know, the Netherlands is, is surrounded by water. You grow up with water, such a part of your life. And so that connection to sea and sea life is just, it's just a part of you. Um, and that is not the case in most of the US except for coastal areas. And the Netherlands also just ingrains the idea of sustainability. It's a small country and, 
you know, food production and, and resource use is, uh, is really kind of reasonable and thought out here. So you grow up with a real sense of, of how to live in a sustainable manner, especially regarding food. That makes sense. So just looking at the cases you have funded, because it's super interesting because you fund projects from all over the world, right? And I mean, there's such a huge difference between, you know, aquaculture in Norway compared to Southeast Asia, you know, pros and cons everywhere. But just tell, talk a bit about, you know, the differences you see, because I mean, regulation is different, technology is different, people have different needs, nations have different needs. So just talk about, you know, the global spectrum and everything you see and how much, you know, it varies because it has to vary a bit, you know, going from Africa to Norway to US, et cetera. I mean, absolutely. You know, we really intentionally um, created this global portfolio because when we first started sort of looking at aquaculture, it felt like such an uncoordinated space where, you know, markets weren't connected at all. And, um, and, and like lessons and knowledge weren't being transferred. You were seeing kind of tech being developed for very specific markets that was never really going to be adoptable or accessible to others. And that in kind of really thinking of aquaculture as a connected global industry, that in itself would start to resolve some of the problems we were seeing. Um, so yeah, we invest all over the world. And you're right, it's, it's I mean, very different environments, different markets, different, uh, um, culture, but a lot of uh, farming issues are, or challenges are, are shared, right? When it comes to kind of understanding the, the biology of a species, um, monitoring for and, and dealing with disease, knowing how to kind of uh, uh, optimize feeding and be the most resource efficient you can. So we see very different types of technologies, but a lot of the same uh, uh, they're trying to solve a lot of the same things. Like we were invested in an, an automatic smart feeding company in Indonesia um, that uh, uses uh, sensors to measure fish and, and shrimp appetite, only feeds when they're hungry, saves kind of up to 24% of fish each, uh, feed each cycle, improves growth rate, makes more consistent growth happen, but also creates a ton of farm data um, that is able to then uh, ac- uh, serve farmers with, with financing and help them access markets. So it's become this full IoT uh, solution that works perfectly um, in Indonesia and I, and I assume will when it expands to other, other shrimp markets and fish markets in the region. Um, but we have a similar similar solution with a company in Norway, Blue Grove, um, that uh, use, they, they, that monitors kind of fish behavior. And, and you think of uh, Norway and salmon as so much further advanced when it comes to feeding, right? You walk into a farm in, in Norway and you see all these cameras, you're like in the biggest control room of your life, but you realize it's still humans watching feed and, um, it's still not that optimal. You're still losing a lot of feed, a lot's going to the bottom of the sea. Uh, fish aren't necessarily always kind of growing at, 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 at the most productive they can be. Um, where in Indonesia, it's kind of murky, muddy water. So you really can't see where the feed's going. So you see what that can solve. But uh, it's been interesting to see that, you know, so different technologies, it's the same conversation in a lot of ways with getting farmers to adopt technology and kind of transform their practices. Um, it almost feels in some ways, I shouldn't make this statement because this is so 
more anecdotal, um, but you're, we're seeing kind of tech, uh, tech start to scale more in Southeast Asia um, than we are. <laughs> Do you see me saying it really slowly because I'm afraid to make it? Uh, but and, and it could be the affordability of the technology. It could be a lot of different reasons. And it's 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 starting to move in in Northern Europe, but it's taken. It seems like it's taken a longer time. Uh, to get some of these tech solutions to start to take off there. Do you have any favorite problems you would love to solve just today? Are we talking about feed, getting rid of antibiotics? I mean, there's a lot of problems to tackle, but do you have anyone that you really want to solve today that you feel like is necessary? Or do you feel like as long as the progress is good, we should just keep on going and, you know, go month by month? You know, so those two are two of the most pressing challenges in aquaculture, and they're also a little infuriating. Like, can't we just outlaw antibiotics for farming and say we have to solve it because there's no other way forward? And and potentially maybe fish meal is why I wouldn't go there. But just like, can't we just we, we know that when we're forced to do something, we adapt, we innovate, we figure it out and we get there and usually really fast. And in those two cases, we need to be really fast. They're both kind of urgent situations. Um, so those are definitely two priorities of Aquaspark. Personally, you know, I've worked with a number of these tech companies that are using data to create marketplaces that finance farmers. And when we first started uh, looking at aquaculture, I mean, I kind of already mentioned not a lot of financing going into aquaculture in the first place, but was shocked that most of aquaculture, I think at the time, and it's probably still almost as high, was 90% smallholders who had zero access to fair financing. I mean, you know, they, they would get loans from the feed distributor um, who they needed feed from, right? And it wasn't always the, the most just system. Um, and to see now these kind of data-driven marketplaces being able to drive financing directly to farms and, and give farmers the chance to keep their fish in their water longer if they need to um, in order to kind of reach a better price at, at, at harvest or to treat for the disease in the right way or not take the fish out right away and to be able to find some kind of solution um, and to actually make the right choice because they're not up against the wall. They have, they have resources to kind of make that choice. It, that feels like it solves a tremendous amount already. I mean, most, most aquaculture farmers get that, they, that their environment is really sensitive and their fish are sensitive to that environment. They want a good product. They want to be able to continue to produce there. They want to do the right thing. Having the knowledge and the resources to do the right thing has been the challenge. And we're seeing kind of data solve that challenge by bringing in service providers and, and, and access to market and other things to help them get through it. Very good points. Another question that's interesting. Do you feel like, um, should it be easier for people to become farmers themselves, right? Because there's very hard to get an entry point as a farmer, especially this is, of course, I only know Norway, right? But like, it's very hard to get the license to be able to operate in the oceans because, you know, oceans are tricky. Like who owns the ocean? Does everyone owns them? Or should every person have, you know, their own slot in the ocean and take care of that slot? Because... Yeah, I mean, ocean is just like a very hard space to regulate because there's so many interests that play at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And and I and I think you know Norway and and I and I 
you you know much better than me the, the backside of the story of kind of permit applications and whatnot. But I really value that they do such a thorough job of making sure that the site is okay and that, that they have tight regulations there around permitting. Um, but I agree. I mean, one of our big strategies in Sub-Saharan Africa, we're launching a, a kind of a subsidiary of AquaSpark just focused on Africa to really catalyze the development of a sustainable aquaculture industry there. Um, we're working with some uh, larger uh, tilapia producers now that are fully vertically integrated. Um, and so the idea is that they will catalyze outgrower pro programs with seed, with feed, with access to financing, with uh, you know, help getting the permit or the, the, the permit already in place. Um, and to really start growing an industry with kind of like-minded farmers and the best inputs and knowledge available. Um, and, and I think, yes, that needs to happen in other regions as well. If you look at another point, which I think I discussed this with Adam Draper, who also invests in the ocean, is that if you look at the talents going into the industry, I mean, it's very much dependent on the countries, but I mean, there has to be a fair argument to see that many smart and driven people don't necessarily have a dream of aquaculture. Maybe they have a dream of space, you know, technology, electric cars, etc. If you just look at the talent pool, do you feel like there should be a lot more people tackling the, these issues that it also needs to be like a great place for like hungry entrepreneurs to work with the ocean? Because it seems like there's so many problems they could solve, but maybe it's just, it seems like it's not always on the radar. No, first of all, yes is the answer, but we also need more capital to back them in their ideas and we need more investors in this space. You're starting to see both move. I mean, we're seeing great accelerators like Hatch Blue and the work they're doing. I think they've had 40 or 50 um, companies go through uh, their program. Um, and aquaculture is changing. I mean, I think something that's going to unlock it a lot for all of us is real success with a, a startup company. I mean, eFishery, the company I mentioned in Indonesia, um, they're based in Bandung. And, you know, when we invested, it was really early. Um, and they had a hard time hiring, uh, hiring the team they wanted because you're right, aquaculture wasn't that sexy. And um, they didn't really understand what the future of this company could be. Um, they, along with other kind of pioneer entrepreneurs in this space, have done an incredible job getting people excited around the movement of, hey, together we are figuring out what the future food system is going to be. And we're, we're producing that. We're creating a new way of, um, of designing, you know, a new way of producing fish and shrimp that is yes, more environmentally uh, friendly, but it's also, it's more just, it's, uh, it's fairer, it's more transparent. It's all these things we want it to be. And uh, eFishery just closed their series C um, with some of the world's largest tech investors. And I think, I'm like saying this as, I think most of them, it was their first investment into aquaculture. Um, and, you know, they have, I think, 800 plus people working with them now. And the talent is just increasing and increasing. And we need more examples like that. We need more companies where you can actually see what it's done and what the future looks like. And, and, and it's starting to happen. It just, it takes a long time to like redo framework. If you look at, sorry, I, I wanna, but it, like, like feed ingredients. I mean, when we first invested, there were a lot of ideas around insects, around single cell, around how we were going to, you know, create the perfect feed for, for farmed fish. 
Um, well, now we're seeing commercial plants um, starting to finally be built 10 years later. Um, so we're getting there. But, but I think, I mean, there's such a key point you, you're bringing along here because it's also about, you know, consistency and persistency because like it's biology we're talking about. So imagine you're going to farm a new species. I mean, Norway is incredible at salmon because we have the generations to back it up. And I mean, generation in terms of the fish, you know. So, I mean, to to crack a new farming method or a new, you know, species, it's hard work and it's time consuming because... You can't expect, you know, great results in maybe three, four years. Maybe you have to go at the problem for 10 years to scale it up. So maybe that also just shows you that this industry is for serious people who want to be in this industry for a very long time. hundred percent, but it's also generations of farmers as well, right? Who've been doing things one way and they don't want to think that all of a sudden AI can be better than them. Or uh, So that is a, a transition process as well. Although the truth is, is one of the reasons we actually entered aquaculture and got excited about this space is you're right that, you know, there, there are generations of fish stock and, and, and some of this stuff has been going on for a while, but compared to a lot of the other industries or animal protein sectors, it's relatively young. And if you look at it, most of its growth is still predicted to be ahead of it. So there's a lot we can do. Like this is the moment now where it does still feel malleable and, and at a place where we can change things around and get them right for this next massive stage of growth. Do you see any like big problems in terms terms of scaling it i think like ocean is like sort of like 17 80 percent of protein intakes and in like a global consumption scale like do you feel like this is just a matter of growing it or do you feel like there's some big hurdles we need to tackle or how we mentioned you know feed being the obvious one or do you also think like it destroys ecosystems if we just keep on growing without really understanding the consequences of growing in the oceans you know, I think I, I think we've resolved a lot of the production challenges, um, but not at scale yet. I think we and there's still, especially I think around disease uh, monitoring for and and treating. There's still a little ways to go, but if, if you look at feed with the insects, with single cell proteins, with algae. Um, we see now that these are kind of really viable feed ingredients that we can do really well, we can produce really well. Um, it's gonna take an immense amount of capital to get them to scale. Um, I think we, you know, we probably have, I'm really an optimist, but five, 10 more years of really resolving challenges and then we really need to scale what we have out there. But if you, you already kind of look at some farms that are at a pretty big scale, um, producing really, really well now, which was not the case 10 years ago. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of things to be optimistic about if you look at aquaculture and, you know, just using the ocean better and understanding the ocean better. So just some final, you know, ref reflection questions, like what do you tell to people who ask you for advice to succeed or to have a career like you have? Do you have any general advice or do you just say to people that they should follow their curiosity and make their own journey their own? You know, I think they should they should meet as many people as they can. They should listen and be open to people. Um, I think, uh, you know, people always say, find what you like to do. I have to say, like, 80% of what I do, I don't actually like. Um, but I love being a part of this world. I feel really lucky that I get to be a part of the conversation around kind of our future food system and change and 
I think find something that you're really grateful to participate in, um, uh, you know, that you're kind of, uh, again, honored to be a part of, proud to be a part of, um, that to me, that's almost more, that's what gets you to show up every day, um, more so than, oh, I'm going to have fun at work today. Uh, it's up to you to figure out how to enjoy whatever you're doing. Like, right, that's a, that's a lens you put on. Um, the work doesn't necessarily have to be enjoyable to you. Um, and, and again, yeah, just meet people and, and, and find something and commit to it. I mean, I think, uh, part of the problem is that there is so, there is so much we can all do, but like figuring out what your piece is and just driving it forward is going to be the most kind of effective way forward. But I think that's, you know, that's such a good point because you touched upon like, you know, every day is not going to be an easy day. And I mean, reading up on you and reading your stories, like it was super inspiring because like you, you mentioned it earlier, like in this conversation, you had some health issues growing up, but it also just seems like you have committed to just sort of like pull through and like just keep on going. So, I mean, it's easy to say that, but to actually manage to go through those hurdles and continue do you know why you have been able to do that? Or is it just like in, ingrained in you that you just keep on going when you have challenges? You know, I, I think it goes back to the lens I kind of talked about before and, like, and kind of making, like creating your own perspective of how you see things and, and, and how you want things to be. Um, I mean, it's definitely not always easy, right? I, I, I think I'm a little bit of a fighter. I think um, I kind of talked before around... Uh, uh, being baffled by design not working for all. And there's kind of a toughness in me around wanting things to change and wanting things to be different. I, I typically stick my teeth into something and I, I don't let go until it is what it is. So I think it's it's character, it's, it's lessons learned. It's a lot of help, a big community of people that I'm building with. Um, it's, I've gotten a lot wiser with practice around understanding kind of the best use of where I put my energy and, and not letting things affect me if they don't have to about knowing kind of what's urgent and what's actually not as urgent as everybody thinks it is. Um, and that, that was a hard process to kind of get to the point where you can navigate that and feel like you're doing it well versus everything being on fire all the time. Um, and I think I'm just someone that, uh, I mean, I remember at one point someone said to me, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Like if I were you, I would just stay on the couch. And I was like, like for how long? Like you just stay on the couch and, and do like, like just spend my life on the couch watching like television. And they were like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'd rather actually be out there in the world working with people, feeling like I'm making a contribution. Um, meeting people. I mean, I think there's this, there's this it's kind of moment right now where we're supposed to not value busyness and we're supposed to really value like taking care of ourselves and nurturing ourselves. And I think once we transition through it, it's going to be a really good moment of really learning to listen to ourselves. But I don't think it means not working hard, not pushing yourself forward, not being busy. And um, we all want things to be different. And they're not going to get there unless we do the work. And anyone kind of in this world can tell you how hard the work is to, to change behavior, to change systems, to build something that's never been done before. Um, I think uh, we need to figure out really kind of 
the balance between valuing both of them, where you're bringing your real self to that table to do it and you're honoring yourself. And I think once we have kind of systems of change that actually are more inclusive, um, some of the stuff that's so hard right now won't be. I think that that's the frustrating thing that some of the really hard stuff um, could be avoided. That I, I, I was uh, we, I was in uh, uh, China for a uh, seafood show actually, climbing Mount Laoshan, and I met uh, the the altar of the god of alleviating unnecessary suffering. And it was such a clear moment to me of like just being knowing to define necessary suffering versus unnecessary suffering and made the choice at that moment not to ever suffer unnecessarily. Like we suffer enough as is. Let's not suffer when we don't have to. And, and I think I think it's somewhere in there. It's a convoluted answer, but it's in knowing yourself, knowing what works for you, listening to yourself, knowing others, helping take care of them and impart lessons with them, but also forging forward and getting it done. That's a fantastic answer, Amy. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time. It was great to finally have you on. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really great to talk to you. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.